Hello, everyone. This is Jackson Swearer, that guest host in Hutch, on that podcast in Hutch. Coming back again this week, once again with Jason Probst. Say hi, Jason. Hey. So this is going to be part three. Really, it's the second time that I'm sitting down to interview Jason, but we broke the first one into a two-parter. And at the end of part two, I said that we didn't get to cycling, fishing, or Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) So I don't know that we're going to get to cycling and fishing today, but I do hope that we'll talk at least a little bit about Teddy Roosevelt and pick up somewhat where we left off last time. We didn't have much time to talk about your legislative career, and I think that now would be a great time to have that conversation. Now, I understand it's campaign season, and this isn't a, a campaign message, um, but we are going to be talking about the legislature. And But hopefully we can have a little bit of a different conversation about what goes on in Topeka than the sorts of conversations that are usually going on around this time of year. So thank you for sitting down again with me today. And for listeners, if you have not already listened to parts one and two of my interview with Jason, I would encourage you um, to listen to this first, but then go back and listen to parts one and two as well. I think they will provide some critically important context for Jason's life and his history and what what brought him to where he is today. But today we're gonna talk about the legislature. So first I wanna get a little bit of background just so people kinda know what your role is. So how long have you been a state legislator and what district do you represent? Kinda what's the area of that? So I came into the legislature in 2017, at the in, in the summer of 2017. And uh, the area that I represent is the 102nd District, which is generally south of 17th Avenue. Um, It goes a little bit further north up to 25th Avenue when you get west of Main Street um, and and over to Adams Street. But generally, it's everything south of 17th. Okay. So 2017 was when you started, and that was in the middle of a two-year term. We spoke briefly about this last time, but I want to cover it because I think it's important context. So you took over for Patsy Terrell after she passed away in the middle of her term, which meant that you came into that role without having to win an election, but you also came into that role in the middle of a legislative session. Can you speak a little bit about what that was like and what that first year was as you were trying to get a handle on what it meant to be a state legislator? <laughs> so as you were asking that question, the first thing that came to my mind was the day that I got sworn in. And I felt completely overwhelmed. And I remember I had people pulling me in different directions. I had to go on the House floor. I was completely kind of shell-shocked. I mean, this place is opulent. I mean, there's the founders of the state's names on the wall. There's murals on the ceiling. Uh, There's all this history. And it felt like such a big thing. And I was just stunned. And and the whole thing was to get me here. It was sine die, which is the last day of the session. They wanted to get me sworn in that day. So it's late June 2017. I come in and do this. There's all this activity. There's an event afterwards. The people upstairs on the fifth floor I mean, it's just like any job, right? You got to fill out paperwork and deal with HR stuff, right? So I get whisked off the floor, all sorts of people like, congratulations, this is great or whatever. But then another group of people saying, hey, don't miss this event. It's really important. You got to go to that. Other people trying to get to know you and make sure you know them. And another group of people saying, hey, you got to come upstairs and fill this paperwork or you're not going to get paid or anything like this. So I remember there was a moment on that first day that I was just like deer in the headlights. I mean, I just had... completely overwhelmed and no idea what I had gotten myself into, but it all happened very, very fast. Beyond that, um, one of the things about coming in the middle of the session is I had to immediately stand up a campaign and and had no idea how to do that. I mean, there, there are like really specific things like getting an EIN number before you can set a campaign account up. I didn't have any idea how to do that. But what I did know is people said, you got to set up a campaign right now because you know, there are people that want to start giving you money to help with your campaign the next time around, because I was only going to have one year to raise money to run in the next election. And I had no idea. And so I'm kind of doing this on the fly. And I guess the, the other thing that, that is probably worth mentioning is there is a normal process to come in the legislature. You run your campaign, you get elected, yay, you win, everything's great. And then there's a legislative orientation and they bring you in and they bring all the freshmen, they all get to know each other. I was a class of two. Me and Eileen Horn were the only two people in that year. 
and I did not get to do the legislative orientation. And so I joke that I've never been taught how to be a legislator. That's that's great. I was going to ask um, what the training process was like. So you missed out on on a lot of that. And also, it sounds like if you were coming in on signee die, that was really the end of the first session. And then you come into the summer, you have a lot of other work to do, setting up some campaign things. What what obligations did you have as a legislator over kind of the summer period? Was there Were there any formal tasks that you were supposed to do, or is it just kind of go back to your district and, and do what? Well, mostly it was coming back to the district and figuring out how to campaign, how to get ready for the session. I remember that I took a lot of trips to Topeka that year because I, I, I wanted to learn. So I would go up and try to meet with the leadership office and say, well, what does this mean? How do I? And I would meet with revisers. I, uh, I would meet with research people. Um, I would meet with anybody that could meet with me to talk about how this process worked or how to how to read the state budget, how to understand the legislative process. Um, and all of that to try to prepare myself, because you're right, it was the exact last day of the 2017 session. I was going to have to come in and do the 2018 session in January, and I didn't want to not know what I was doing. So I, I spent a lot of time trying to learn that. It did turn out I still didn't know what I was doing. Well, we'll come to that a little bit once we get to the beginning of that session. I did want to ask, though, and maybe not just in that uh, summer period, but more generally, have there been any particular people that were really important mentors for you as you were learning about the process, either fellow legislators who maybe had some experience, or you mentioned revisers, so you might explain a little bit about who the revisers are and what their role is, um, and anyone in particular who was really helpful for you to try to get your hands around uh, what's going on up there in Tobeka, even though, as you admitted, you still have a lot to learn, or still certainly had a lot to learn in 2018. You know, there there were several people that worked in the leadership office at the time, and Heather Scanlon was one. She she had been in that office for a number of years, and she was very helpful. Uh, Haley Pollack, who had worked in the the minority uh, office, she had moved and worked for the governor at that point, but she was very helpful in kind of familiarizing me with the process a little bit. Um, beyond that, I kind of worked with Tom Sawyer was another one. I mean, he was very helpful. Jim Gardner. Um, Annie Keither, there's a handful of legislators that I kind of relied on to bring me up to speed on things. Um, but locally, you know, I reached out to um, some other people who had had office before. And Dave Kerr is one uh, that I sat down and just kind of asked him, what do I need to understand about this process? Interestingly, another group of people that were really helpful to me were the, the people that work in the building, uh, the legislative services people. Um, those are the HR people, kind of, to, to put it in that term. The revisers and research people. These are all attorneys that work in the basement of the Capitol. Um, every one of them helped me figure out, even, even like the custodial staff, like kind of helped steer me around because it is an overwhelming building. It's circular. And so you, you, you kind of lose your sense of direction in there. But uh, a lot of the staff in the building was very helpful to me. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking about the building uh, as well. You know, there are all of these weird back staircases and more than one place to get from point A to point B. So I'm sure learning to, just to navigate the building and where to go would be this whole learning curve. So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, you go up in 2018. It's your first session. Try to describe a little bit for listeners who may not be familiar with what goes on up there in Topeka. What is like the average day for a legislator like? And so I'm not talking about the days where you're up until midnight mm -hmm. or, or kind of not the weird days, but what's the what's an average day for a legislator look like? Well, you can start your day as early as you want. I mean, if you want to come in at seven in the morning, there's usually some breakfast thing going on, some group that's talking to legislators about their issue or whatever, but they'll host a breakfast and you can come in for that. Um, so you can start there. Uh, you can go into your office. Usually committees start at nine. And I, that first year, had a committee every day at nine. A there's typically nine o'clock committees, 1.30 committees, and 3.30 committees. So the first part of the session, you're, you're doing three committees a day, typically. And that's what my day was. So I would usually get there between seven and eight in the morning. 
I'd try to catch up on emails, read what had happened bef- the day before, figure out if there's anything I needed to catch up on, and then get ready for a committee meeting. And I, I tried to develop all these processes to, to help me manage all this information. The, the, the information that comes at you it, up there is unbelievable. So just for, for listeners, give me a ballpark number on the number of bills that are introduced in any given session. That, that fluctuates a little bit, but it, it, 500 bills being introduced is nothing. Okay. So 1,000 bills is not surprising. Okay. So somewhere between 500 and maybe a couple thousand pieces of legislation get offered. And so for you to do your job, you might, you probably want to be at least peripherally aware of what is out there. How do you then from there... I imagine there's no way you could possibly read the entirety of the text of 100 pieces of legislation and absorb that in any sort of meaningful way. That doesn't sound possible to me, Um, although I'm sure there are some people up in Topeka uh, who do that, probably some of the people who work on staff, for example. Um, How do you begin the process of prioritizing what to look at? Do you focus on your committees first? Uh, Is that one of the strategies or something different than that? So, yes, my committees take priority. So I, I try to pay attention to what bills are being introduced that are relevant to my committee or going to be in my committees and try to make sure I know what's happening with them. And if, if you really balance it, then you kind of watch what's happening on the Senate side because they typically we typically have a counterpart committee in the Senate. So anything that comes over is introduced in the Senate, there's a good chance it's going to end up on the House side. So you kind of want to see what the variations are there. But during the first part of committee session, and, and th- that might be something we want to explain, there's two parts of the committee process. The first part, then there's turnaround, and there's the second part of the committee process. But during the first part, these are where bills are introduced in the House and routed to committees. They can either be introduced in committee or on the House floor, but if they're on the House floor, they're then referred to a committee. Who chooses which committee the bill goes to? The Speaker of the House. Okay, so one person. Uh, makes that decision. All right, we're going to return to all of the power that the Speaker of the House has later, I'm sure, in our discussion. Um, I I appreciate, I think we should try to get into a little bit of a conversation about process. Um, I want to be a little mindful of time because I think that you and I could spend hours talking about some of the challenges within the process. I think you and I love process quite a lot too. (laughs) We do, we do. Uh, That's true. but so you referenced one of the critically important parts of the process already. You have to, we have this bicameral system where there's a House and there's a Senate, and you both uh, can separately pass legislation, and that happens through committees first, generally. Mm-hmm. So on both sides, there are committees, and they work the bills. Um, so within a committee, who gets to decide which bills you talk about? Uh, the chair. So usually the chair of the committee will decide sort of they set the agenda for for that. Um, so who picks the chairs? The combination of the Speaker of the House and the majority leader. All right. So Speaker of the House again. Um, all right. So the so the basic structure of the process is the Speaker of the House gets the bills, refers the bills to the committee or the bills are introduced within a specific committee. Mm-hmm. And then the chair of that committee decides which bills we're going to talk about. And they set an agenda. And usually, How far out do they set the agenda? Like a week, two weeks? Do you plan out the whole session? How does that usually that work? That is really variable. Okay. Um, some, some chairs, and it's up to each chair how they manage that committee. Some chairs will uh, try to set an agenda, you know, a week ahead of time or three or four days ahead of time at a minimum. Uh, some days you get in and you'll see a notice the last couple of years have been particularly challenging, I mean, with COVID and some of the logistical challenges. But there would be days where you'd come in and it would say, meeting on call of a chair. This was a relative, I mean, it's a common thing, but it was used more in the last couple of years. And that basically says, we don't have anything on the agenda, but we might have a meeting if the chair decides that we're going to have a meeting. So don't schedule anything. We may not have a meeting. We may have a meeting. And you may find out there's a bill hearing that day. And you may not find that out until the morning of of the committee. Okay. Does that ever create any challenges for like public participation in that process? I would think, you know, you have these hearings on bills. And I know because I've I've done this before that members of the public can come to testify um, about a bill, either for it or against it. Or I believe you could even give a neutral testimony to just give some additional context. Um, 
What impact does that process have on public participation in the lawmaking? The short agendas make it hard for the public to participate because basically, and I, I want to be fair about this, generally if that on-call thing is, is used and they say we're going to have a meeting, not always, but generally most chairs are doing informational hearings. They're not, they're not looking to take action on a bill. But that's not always the case. It's sometimes they railroad a bill through because they want it and they, they, you know, it appears that they don't really want public input. But it, it does shorten the window. And there have been times where we didn't realize something was going to be up for a hearing in a committee and we had to quickly try to mobilize people to come talk about this because there, there is a built-in advantage to the majority. And, and going to your point about the speaker and the majority leader and, ta- and choosing the chairs and then having a certain amount of, they have absolute power over the chairs uh, at any point. So there's a lot of power in the majority. And, and another way that they exercise or can exercise that power is through scheduling and saying, we're going to schedule a hearing on this day, but we're only getting to give a day's notice. And the opposition party and the people that were opposed to this can't mobilize to to get that done. So there's one other aspect of committees that I wanted to touch on briefly that we've talked about a little bit offline, but that I find really fascinating. And I'm wondering if you'll speak to like how and why this happens sometimes. I'm aware that there's this phenomenon where when certain bills are coming up into a committee to be voted on, it is occasionally a practice where some members will sub out uh, of the committee on that day or maybe be forced to sub out from the committee on that day by party leadership. Um, it, how often does that sort of thing happen? It's kind of manipulating the membership on the committees when you're going to take an important vote. And what role do you think that that plays in overall in the process? Um, there's two, two times that, that, that the subbing process gets used. One time is completely legitimate. Somebody's missing and we need to fill a vacancy. That's totally legit. Sometimes, the, and, and more often than I'd like to see, um, they will take members. If there's a piece of legislation that there are members of the committee who are not favorable to this and leadership wants it done, they will take those members off and put people on that they know will vote for this legislation or against if that's the case. And they'll put them on the committee, and that is to make sure that that gets it out of the committee uh, with votes on the record so that uh, when it comes to the House floor, we can say, well, this passed out of committee. Got it. Okay. So and in general, is the only way to get a bill onto the floor to have it pass through the committee first? It is the most common way. Okay. So there's some procedural mechanism whereby you could bring something to the floor um, how, how does that work? Can you just describe that briefly? Well, we tried to do this last year with the food sales tax bill. That, oh, okay. that, that was bound up in tax committee. They had heard that bill. They had testimony on that bill, but they were not moving that bill out of committee. And there's another part of the process and why that happens. But that bill, there were a lot of us that wanted to see that happen. We wanted to have a full discussion on the House floor about the food sales tax issue. And we made a motion to pull the bill out of committee and force it into, into the House or into the committee of the whole. Um, basically, re-refer it to another committee. An interesting thing is that when we're on the House floor debating bills, that is a committee. It's just a committee of 125 people. But that's called the committee of the whole where we all come together. So you can make a motion to say, I want to pull this bill out of the, that case would have been taxation committee. And I want that bill to be heard and debated and voted on by the committee of the whole. And we made a motion to do that. But the threshold for that is incredibly high. I think it's 70 votes uh, to get that done. So it's not quite two thirds, but it's more than a simple majority. Um, it's a very high threshold to get that done. Okay. Yeah. So, so 25, 125 members of the house. So some quick math, what's um, like 68 I guess. So it's a little more, a little more than half. Um, and so that's challenging to do, obviously, particularly when you're in, in the minority party. And as we previously discussed, the majority party has much more control over the passage of bills through the committees. So as a Democrat, Jason, how do you get anything done at all? Like, I mean, just 
give us a little bit of hope here. The process much must work reasonably okay most of the time, uh, right? I mean, I get frankly, I'm I'm very fr- frustrated with the process. I mean, I I I think I'm a big believer in process and in rules. And it's funny because I'm not even like a rule person. I, I think rules are just kind of like guidelines and to set the broad parameters. But I think that process is important because it protects us, right? If we have a process and we follow, you've done a lot of leadership work, so you understand the concept of, you know, trust the process. If you trust the process, then you can trust the results. You may not even like the results, but you can trust that they were done authentically. I don't always feel that way in this process. But there are so, – so, so I get really frustrated by that because I think let's have a fair and open debate and you have the numbers and you can you, – just on that, you can probably win your case and you can get what you want. You don't have to manipulate the process to get what you want. So I have a lot of problems with the way the process is kind of gamed in the way I see it. Um, but there are ways to get things done. One is through amendments. Um, when a bill comes up, you can offer an amendment and debate that amendment and through that process, get that provision added to the bill. You can um, you you can send bills back to committee if you don't think that they're ready. Um, there are some things there uh, so that if you want to have a further discussion about it and it's come out of the committee, but it's come to the House floor, but you think it needs more work. I've seen that happen sometimes. Um, but, but honestly, the the where the rubber meets the road a lot of time is just in the conversations you have with people in the building about, I would like to see this thing happen, or I think this is incomplete. And you can have those conversations with committee chairs. You can have those conversations with colleagues. You can have those conversations with leadership. And if they're receptive to that and you, you know, you can make your point, then, then there might be some opportunity to include what you want in that bill. And I've seen that happen a number of times. It's not hopeless. But it's very, very hard, and it takes a lot of legwork to get to get that done. So it's it's less. It's, a lot of times, it's less about process and more about trying to uh, work with people and and get those things done. It sounds to me then like relationships with other legislators are a particularly important part of the process. So. How did you go about trying to form relationships and friendships with people when you first got to the legislature? That was that was another overwhelming part. There's so many people there and they they all have different backgrounds and they all come from different areas and they all have different groups. It's kind of like middle school in some ways. There's different groups of people. Um, it's a little bit like summer camp in some ways and everybody kind of so you just try to find some common ground. And the committee, the committees are really where, for me, a lot of that can happen, right? We committee, I do appreciate the committee process a lot because one of my favorite committees is the in at least in terms of how it works, is the ag committee. Because it's a, it's a lot less political in that committee. It's really the problems that are brought to us in that committee are not political. They're largely functional problems that people are encountering in the world of agriculture. Sometimes politics gets attached to those, but really in that committee, it's a pretty good faith effort to try to solve problems. So through the work in those committees, you can build relationships and you build respect with people, right? They're, you're asking questions, they're asking questions. And I think a lot of that comes in you know, how you treat each other and how you approach those questions, how you treat conferees. Um, and that to me is kind of like the base building block of future relationships. Um, sometimes it's, it is a little bit weird. It's like somebody will say something at the well or somebody will, um, make a statement about something and you just, you know, if you're mindful about it, you can go to that person later and say, I I appreciated what you said, or I may have disagreed with what you said, but I appreciated the way you said it. And that can kind of start something too. There's also a lot of evening events. We talked about the average day. Once you're done with the the, the committee work during the day and the time on the floor, um, almost every night during the session, there's something going on. So there's like a, a group dinner, so to speak, where they have us in and they have like a buffet dinner or something like that. And uh, that's an opportunity to sit down and talk to people, not at work, but in an environment where you're, it's a little more friendly and a little more open. 
How much cross-pollination is there in between the parties at events like that? Are you kind of hanging out? You mentioned it's a little bit like middle school, which makes me think about different cliques of people kind of hanging out with each other and they are sort of exclusive. Um, is that kind of what it's like or is there some real re reaching across the aisle, uh, if you will? There's a decent amount of reaching across the aisle. There's a lot, I mean, a good amount of cross-pollination. I, I would like to see it, it normalized more as part of the legislative process. I mean, there... When I came in in 2017, there was this thing that had happened in 2016 where they they blended this freshman, both Republicans and Democrats in the freshman class, and they had like a lunch thing where didn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, one day a week, they all went to lunch, they all sat together. And I think that made that group a lot more cohesive. I think it made them more willing to work together. Um, that's the group that undid the, the whole brown bag tax thing. And... I think that's partly why, because it was the, it wasn't divided by party. It was like here's a freshman class. Let's get them together. Let's get them comfortable with each other. And because of that, they were familiar and friendly and worked with each other. Every since then, uh, that's not been something the caucuses have gone their own way and done their own luncheons for freshmen. Um, but they haven't put them together. I think we had the civility effort a few years ago, and one of my thoughts during that was. It, that is not going to really take root until we normalize it as part of the process. Interesting. I think that would be a great example. Often kind of this breaking bread together, sharing sharing a meal can be a great way to build a relationship with a person. That makes me think about another group of people that you have to have relationships with who also do a lot of buying of meals, uh, which are lobbyists. But I want to put a pin in lobbyists for a moment and go back to some a couple of things that you've said um, one thing that I think I said, one thing that you said, um, that I want to unpack a little bit for folks who maybe aren't as familiar with the building. So I use this phrase across the aisle, which, um, is a pretty common phrase that people will use, but it has a really literal meaning in the legislature. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but there are literally the Republicans are on one side of the aisle and then there are Democrats on the other side of the aisle. Um, and there is literally an aisle down the middle, um, although in practice, actually, because the Republicans have so many people, there are a few Republicans on the Democratic side of the aisle, technically. That is right. Um, but um, I believe, can you recount the story of the time when you almost actually walked across the aisle? Yes. I knew you were probably headed here, and it's it's one of the funniest things. My first year in the legislature, I, I sat on the inside. So the rows are kind of curved a little bit. And there's a rule that when the speaker is in the chair and the doors are shut, um, you cannot step in the aisle. You can get to the other side, but you have to walk behind the speaker or you have to leave the house chamber and go around to the other side and get over there that way. But you cannot just walk across the aisle and go find your friend on the other side. This is one of those things that's like in your head, but it seems so silly and new and you haven't, you've, I've never been in an environment before where you couldn't take the shortest route from point A to B, right? Like just walk over to it. So anyway, something happened. I saw somebody over on the Republican side that I wanted to go talk to during session. And I just started to walk down my row and I literally started walking out into the aisle and Jeff Pittman, who is from Leavenworth, he's a senator now, but he was in the House now. He, he turned at me and he put his arm out, you know, like moms do when you come to a stop sign or something real fast. And he put his hand out. And he goes, no. And I was just shocked. He's like, not on my watch. And so it, that cemented in my mind that, yes, you, in fact, cannot walk across the aisle. Um, but I nearly did. It was we, we have a joke about the, the aisle is like hot lava. You cannot step in the aisle there you go i just i i thank you for sharing that story i just love that anecdote um it's it's a funny place right uh, yeah. um and there are uh there's this sense of decorum and rules and also sort of lots of crazy stuff happens um but also there is really the sense of tradition in some ways uh, and i kind of enjoy that personally um one other thing that we kind of a term that you used was uh went to the well which I think I know what you mean by that, but 
I imagine some people uh, are like, well, the well, what the heck? Why is there a well in the legislature? Um, you, surely they have plumbed water. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the well is, in fact, uh, where you go to speak. Mm-hmm. In, and this is just on the House, am I correct? I believe in the Senate, they just get to stand where they sit and, and just talk. That's right. um, but in the House, if you want to speak to the whole body, then you have to go down in the front and go speak at the well. Do you remember the first time you went to the well? Yes. What was it about? It was about the funding for the Flint Hills bike trail. And it was near the end of my first session. I had not gone to the well once. I was terrified of going to the well. Um, and at the end of the, at the, towards the end of the session, I said to myself, Jason, if you don't go to the well this session and get this anxiety and this fear out of your system, uh, you are going to carry that over into the next session. Of course, I had to run for re-election in between there, but I, I'm, I thought, if I don't do this now, I'm going to be afraid again next year, and then it's gonna, I'm going to have to go through this process all over again. Because it is terrifying. You, you, you go to the front, the speaker is behind you on the, the dais, the 124 other members are out there looking at you, or sometimes not. I mean, a lot of times they're just not paying attention. They've made up their mind. They don't care what you have to say. So they're doing other things. People in the gallery up above looking at you. So it's very intimidating. You're constantly reminded of the gravity of that room that like there, there were decisions made, you know, uh, 150 years ago that we're still living with today. These are, these are big decisions. They're consequential and 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 so you're in there and you feel very small and you're staring at, out at all these people. But yes, I went and spoke about how important it was to do this funding. I didn't really add anything to the conversation, but that was not my point. My point was to just do it and rip the Band-Aid off and get myself at least started on the process of not being afraid of doing that. Are there... Um... I'm imagining, once again, kind of the school analogy to middle school. And one of my recollections for middle school is that there are some people who like would never talk at all in class. And then some people who sat in the front of the room and raised their hand and answered every question. Is that kind of what it's like in the legislature? Are there some people who go to the well all the time and some people who don't? And which are you one of the one or the other of those? And kind of how do you how do you manage deciding when you're going to go down to speak? I'm pretty judicious, and when I go to speak, um, uh, Henry Helgerson was one of my early mentors, and he said, "You need to, you need to view your voice and your time at the well as a commodity, and don't use it too much. Um, don't be afraid to use it, but don't use it too much." So I've always taken that to heart, and I've always tried to consider that um, if I have something additive to to provide. If I have a thought that I think would be useful to the body, if I have a point that I think is worth making, um, then I'll do it. Um, but I do not go to the well just to hear myself talk. Um, but yes, you're exactly right. There are people that you'll you, you'll never hear from them. They never go to the well. There are other people that they cannot seem to resist the urge to go down to the well. That's funny. I'd say I'm somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Okay. Um. Moving along, I want to spend just a little bit more time talking about process because I want to get into the relationship between the House and the Senate, which is something that I think um, that I think the average observer of politics is aware that there are the two houses, but may not fully understand the degree to which there is conflict between the two chambers. Um, even you would think. Right, Republicans control both bodies, so surely they just all get along with each other, right? So um, that that might be what I would think if I hadn't had so many conversations um, about the challenges between the two bodies. Can you speak at all to that? Like, why does that happen, and how does that, if there is a conflict between what the House wants and what the Senate wants, how is that resolved? There's definitely a what I would classify as a power struggle between the House and the Senate. A lot of times we'll pass something over to the Senate and the Senate will materially alter that, change it dramatically, or just not do anything with it. Maybe they just decide they don't like that. Medical marijuana is an example of that. 
We got that out of committee. We got it out of the House, went over to the Senate, and the Senate just decided they didn't want to mess with that. And so it sat. Um, the fentanyl testing strips is another one. We got that out of the House with near universal support, and it sat over in the Senate for two years. And then by the time that got taken up in committee, that provision was stripped out, and we had to do a bunch of gymnastics to try to keep putting it back in. Didn't you get a Medicaid expansion out of the House in 2018, too? We did. Yeah, yeah. I thought so. Yeah. But and couldn't get it taken up in the Senate. No. There's there's just all these all these interesting uh, things, but the Senate, you can do whatever you want on the on the House side, but if you can't get the Senate to move and vice versa. So there's a lot of, that becomes a big power dynamic. So the, the there's a conflict between Republicans and Democrats. Um, there's a conflict between people who see, even re, you know, regardless of party, they may see issues differently and there's division there. Um, but once one body decides something and it goes and it's subject to the other side, the other house, we lose control of it. And then it becomes this tug of war. And there have literally been times where the Senate will say, well, we're not going to run this bill that the house really wants unless you run this bill that the Senate really wants. And that happened last session quite a bit, actually. Um, that, that is a power dynamic between the bodies. And it's just always, and then on top of that, when you have a divided government with a Republican controlled legislature and a Democratic governor, then you have another layer of conflict that kind of muddies that a little bit more. So you mentioned turnaround. That's a kind of a term of art in the legislative world, but that refers to the period in time at which you, you kind of trade the bills. So everything that's come out of the House goes over into the Senate committees and everything that's come out of the Senate goes over into the House committees to be worked by the, you know, the committees on the other side, uh, ostensibly then go up through the process and then get passed out of the other chamber. So this is kind of a, uh, how a bill becomes a law 101, but if it passes out of the Senate and then it goes through the House committee and then passes through the House and you don't change it, it goes straight to the governor. Mm -hmm. And similarly, passing through the House, Senate committee, out through the Senate, no material changes, straight to the governor. Yep. But if either side makes a material change to the bill and then passes it, then you've got two different versions of the bill. Now, I think this works a little different in the Kansas state legislature than it does in the U.S. Congress. Um, what is the process for resolving the conflict between the two pieces of legislation that are passed by the two bodies? So then we put together a conference committee. And the conference committee is the leadership team of the Senate committee that heard that bill and the House committee that heard that bill, which can also be changed. We can you know, sub people in on that. Um, but we'll put those groups together, uh, six people. And there's a discussion about the changes. And that's an interesting process, too, because it's more of like a line item. Like the revisers produce like, here's the House version. Here's the Senate version. Here's where they're the same. Here's where they're different. And they go through line by line and say, you know, the Senate agrees to the House change on this or the House agrees to the Senate change. And it goes back and forth. And if they, if they make all those changes and they agree to them and everybody's on board, they vote. And then it goes back out to both the House and the Senate to say this is what came out of conference committee. Well, it goes to one body first and then the other. And then if we agree to those changes, then then it goes to the governor. If we don't agree to those changes, um, there's a whole bunch of weird procedural stuff that can happen in there. But generally, if we don't agree with the changes, the common thing that happens is we send it back to conference committee and say, hey, we weren't happy with this. Keep working. Okay. Now, so your only option then is to send it back. I think this is really important um, just for understanding the way the process works. So if a normal bill comes through, then you can offer an amendment on that bill. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about how that's one of the ways that the committee of the whole, the whole body can make changes that you can't get done in committees. Um, but you, am I correct that you cannot amend a conference committee report? That is accurate. Okay. So once you get to that part of the process, there's only the people on the conference committee have the ability to make changes to the law that will then eventually be passed. So uh, you mentioned the, is it all, it's not always the leadership of the committees that it's from, but usually is usually those, the, those people. The default is the leadership. Okay. So, and that would, so that would be the majority party has sort of a chair and a vice chair. And then there's a uh, minority. Uh, ranking minority member. Ranking minority member is the term. Okay. So um, just from a structural point of view, the majority party is going to have a rather a lot of control there. Um, 
but not exclusively so because you really only need to get one person from the other side of the aisle to come along with you to to freeze that at three and three. And if they're stuck at three and three, I imagine it just doesn't go anywhere. Well, <laughs> normally, but there's this really weird, and I remember the first time I saw this, I was like, this can't really be a thing. There's a motion called a motion to agree to disagree. And that basically removes the people who disagree off of the committee and says, we're going to go ahead and move this conference committee report without your signature. Um, and it just seems like such a weird thing. It's, it's, it, it says, we're not going to try to work on this anymore. You two, whether you're a minority or maybe sometimes it's three and three or whatever, but basically it's like, you guys won't agree to it. So we're just going to like pretend that you don't through this motion, we're going to pretend that you don't exist. We're going to do a motion to, to, to agree to disagree once that's approved, uh, then we send a conference committee report absent the signatures of the people who disagreed, and the vote happens anyway. Okay. So as a matter of practice, what percentage of the legislation that gets passed do you think comes through conference committee report? I don't know specifically the percentage, but it's way too much. Okay. So quite a lot. Yeah. Um, one other process thing. I'm going to check my time. One other process thing I wanted to make sure to talk about, although this hasn't been something that's been talked about very much at all recently, but it's a specific type of amendment called a gut and go. Mm -hmm. What's a gut and go? A gut and go is, th this was a big topic when I was at the news and it was a big topic my first couple of years in the legislature. A gut and go is basically at any point in the process, you can delete the contents of a bill as long as there's some connection, but that's a pretty fast and loose definition. But you can delete the contents of a bill and replace it with the contents of another bill and have a vote and it can pass. But the bill might be completely different than the original bill that was passed on. And this can happen at the committee level. This can happen at the House or Senate level. Um, it, it just, at just about any place it can happen. And, and it just fundamentally changes a bill. There was, a, I remember years ago when I was at the news, there was a bill dealing with uh, amusement park rides and inspections of some and, and if i remember correctly um, we we called to interview a legislator about it and said why did you vote this way on this bill when it would hurt your community so bad because they had like a big county fair and he said i that's not what that bill was about it was about something else and then when we said no it was actually about this and then he said oh well that must have been a gut and go I mean, to the point that it's very confusing. It's really, it's confusing for legislators to track sometimes. It's really confusing for people outside of the legislature to track. I sat down with a grad student from Wichita State who was studying social work and said, can you explain to me what happened to this bill? And it was dealing with something in the social work world. And so I had to look it up and I was like, oh, this is, she's like, I followed this bill. And then all of a sudden it just wasn't that anymore. And so I had to explain to her like and walk her through each step of it and say, at this point, your bill got taken out and this other thing got put in and now it became something entirely different. Okay. I joke that we can change time in the legislature if you can get enough votes. That's Whether fine. we suspend the midnight rule all the time and we've had discussions about if you start business on, on one day and you go past midnight and you don't and you suspend the midnight rule, is it still that business day? I mean, it's just weird stuff like that. Um, explain the midnight rule. The midnight rule was created, I can't remember what year, but basically we have to have a vote to go past midnight where the, the, we say, we're not going to go past midnight. Um, this was in a direct result of Bob Bethel who from Alden, who stayed up one of these late night marathon sessions, drove home and ended up having a car accident on the way home. And the legislature was members of the legislature were incensed after that. And nobody, nobody likes that staying up till three, four in the morning to debate legislation. Um, but at that time they said, okay, we're going to put a midnight rule in. And if we suspend it, we have to have a vote on it. So that's what happens. The default is we don't go past midnight. Uh, in reality, we take votes all the time to suspend the midnight rule and keep going. What's the latest you've ever been up? Um, Sine die of 21, I think, maybe 20, I can't remember for sure. But we, 
started at nine o'clock in the morning and went until nine o'clock the next day. I think it was in 2020. Yeah. Um, wow. So that's quite a long day. Yeah. You're on, you're on the house floor. I mean, you can leave and go eat or whatever, as long as you're not a call of the house, but you can do all that and, and leave, but you're, you're expected to be there and be ready to vote and be ready to debate and pay attention for 24, 25 hours if needed. If you keep it up, we might be able to make the whole interview just me uh, having you explain terms of art. Uh, let's call the house. <laughs> call the house is actually, it was one of the most unnerving things when it first happened. Um, call the house is basically, um, we're missing people, the vote is close, or we're going to make people be on record for this vote because it's a political thing and we want to make sure we can do the postcard on them or whatever. And so they do call of the house. They lock the doors. They're big oak doors. They shut very loudly. A guard stands at the front of it and nobody can leave. You literally have to raise your hand to go to the bathroom. And uh, during that time, they go track down the missing legislators, bring them in and force them to cast a vote. I have uh, I've heard tell that occasionally there will be a person who has to go hide during call of the house so that they can try to get people to change their votes. Is is that a is that a thing that happens? And is there like a name for that? That's a rabbit. Oh, a rabbit. That's a rabbit. And yes, the uh, sometimes what will happen is they will send somebody away. Um, I will say that happens more on the majority side than our side, but because they control a lot of that, but they'll send somebody away. So there's a vacancy and, and they won't find them. And the whole time there's, you see phones blowing up, you see texting happening, you see people being called back, uh, to the speaker's office and all of that arm twisting is happening while this guy's just hanging out in his office, waiting for them to say, you can come on back. That's funny. It's just interesting how the whole process works and some of the ways that it, it works well and some of the ways that maybe it, maybe it quite doesn't. Um, I can certainly see why you would want to have a mechanism to make sure that everybody does come vote on important votes. Um, but maybe maybe we shouldn't be playing games with it. Anyway, um, well, I apologize for any listeners who thought that this was way too far in the weeds, but uh, a group of your listeners that I won't have to apologize to are lobbyists because don't worry, I didn't forget about you. <laughs> um, I know that um, the last time that we talked, um, well, not the last time that we talked, obviously, but the, the last time I was interviewing you, you mentioned this concept that you see yourself sometimes as being the lobbyist for your constituents in a building full of lobbyists for other different groups. Um Talk a little bit about the role that people who represent different industry groups um, and other other special interests play in the process and um, maybe kind of some of the good sides of that, perhaps, in terms of gaining information about what's going on and maybe some of the, the bad sides, if you will. So that's an in interesting thing. So the lobbyist dynamic is, is really curious to me. Um, on one hand... It would be impossible for us as legislators to know how policy is going to affect an entire industry. And say something like the trucking industry. I, I might have access to a handful of individual truckers and they can share with me their experience in that. And I love that and that's useful and helpful. Um, but overall, looking at an industry and how it's going to affect things, um, it's good to have somebody who represents that group of people. Um, it's good to have somebody who says, this is what we're seeing in an industry, like this, this change is happening in the environment um, or in the business environment or whatever the case may be, and we need uh, legislation to deal with this. There's a lot happening in, in a lot of different areas all the time, and we can't keep up with it. So having somebody who says, these are the big issues. Um, some of the ag groups are really good. They're, they're very much membership-based. So they're talking to members. Members are elevating the issues they care about at a local level, regional level, so on. And then by the time it gets to us, there's been a process that says, this is our legislative platform. This is what we care about. That's very useful. Um, so there is a lot of good information. There were some things that, you know, there's been a lot of uh, hubbub about some things in banking, like that. I don't want to open any Pandora's boxes here, but the ESG, right? The, the new... I think that's environmental social governance on banking. I, I hadn't heard much about that. I didn't know much about it. I just saw that a lot of people were, there was a lot of chatter about it. And people were concerned about it. Well, I went to the, to the lobbyist for the Kansas Banking Association and said, I don't know what this is. Like, what is this about? And 
why, why are people concerned about it? And he did a really good job of explaining both sides of that to me. He said, on one hand, people are worried that this is going to come down and banks are going to have to follow this and it's going to be onerous. On the other hand, we don't want this other thing that's out there because we want banks to be able to make the decisions for themselves on how they invest. If they want to incorporate this into their portfolio and this is something they want, that's good. So for me, that was that was a good and quick and easy resource for me to go to to find information about something I had no idea about. And by the time I'm done talking to him, I have a pretty good understanding of it. Do the, le- uh, do the lobbyists ever play a role in bringing legislators together, like across the aisle or from different maybe factions within the legislature as they are trying to get what they want done? Is that is that a part of the whole relationship building within the building? I would say it is. I think it's – I mean, honestly, I'd say it's often more oriented towards um, – their policies and and trying to make sure that they're smooth in the way for whatever it is they're trying to accomplish that session. Um, But they do play a role in that. Like a lot of times, um, you know, I like to, there's a, there's a group of uh, Republicans that I like to have dinner with consistently when I'm in Topeka. And uh, there are several lobbyists that I know I can say, Hey, can you help me put this dinner together so that I can pull some Democrats and some Republicans together so we can talk and we can figure out, um, and it, that's just a friendly thing. That's just so at that core, that's just an understanding, right? So that we stop using the labels and we start to humanize each other a little bit. And, and, and that's very, very useful, I think. Great. I think that's probably very important to the whole process. And um, I think that it's just, I find it interesting that lobbyists in general get such a bad name. And I think that uh, as a member of the public, I would be worried about them having too much undue influence. Of course, they can go and buy you dinner and sit you and sit you down with the people that you want to sit with, whereas I would not be able to do that, um, particularly not when you're in session. Um, could could just anybody be a lobbyist? That's an interesting question, if, I suppose. If you register. Yeah, okay. any you can register and be a lobbyist. Um, you, I'm not exactly sure what the process is, but you have to register with the Secretary of State. You have to say you're a lobbyist. You'll have to, if you're in the building, you have to wear a button that says, I'm a lobbyist and I lobby for this group. Um you said something there, though, that I want to that I want to hit on. the The main thing that I think the thing that can balance out the the influence of lobbyists is this access issue, right? N- nobody should have more access to me just because of proximity or money, right? And it it shouldn't matter, in my view, whether um, anybody in this district or any you know anywhere really in the state. If they want to talk to me, I mean, I feel like that's our job as legislators, right? Lobbyists are part of the system, and that's there, and that's that's what it is. Um, and they get paid to be in the building every day, and they get paid by whoever, whether whether somebody's contracted with them or whether they work for a company. Their job is to watch legislation, make sure that their interests are protected, and to make sure that they're uh, working and advancing whatever policies it is that they need to get done. Um, the counterweight to that is, I think, good relationships with your district and your voters and making sure that people in your district know that they can access you and they can talk to you. And that's what I mean when I say I think that legislators are supposed to kind of be the lobbyists for their districts and for their constituents. Just kind of speaking about that input from constituents, input from lobbyists, do you have any kind of standard framework or procedure that you go through to decide how you're going to vote? I, yeah, we, (laughs) I kind of drew a thing a while ago and it's, it's kind of like diagramming a sentence I've been writing long enough. It's kind of hard to remember, but basically if something comes to me, um, I look at it first through, is this, this isn't a little bit arbitrary, but is it good or is it bad? Right? Like, does it, the people that I want to represent, is this going to cause harm to them or is it going to help them? And I, I try to weigh that there. There's another step of that process where if sometimes I don't know whether that's going to be good or bad for the, the people that I represent, in which case I then think I need to call and find out a good example of this. There was legislation that came in the commerce committee that was dealing with tax credits for people with disabilities. And the, th- I was being told that this was going to be very good for this population, but it didn't feel like it was going to be. 
And so I called people who work in, in the disability community here and said, can I send you this legislation? Can you look at it? And can we have a conversation about this so that I know whether this is good or not? So there's, there's a point where I may have enough information to know or at least have a reasonable idea of whether this is going to be good or bad for the district and whether it fits with what we want. If I don't, there's like an off-ramp where I have to go gather more information and then come back into that process. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I uh, I want to make sure we spend at least a little bit of time out in the abstract um, thinking about what your approach to this whole being a legislator, politician thing is. And I promised that we would get back to Teddy Roosevelt. So... I'm wondering if you have any particular influences from the past, um, knowing that you're very interested in Teddy Roosevelt, so I'm hoping you'll talk some about him. But if there's anyone else that you kind of look to as maybe an example um, or, or multiple different people, different characteristics, ideals that you try to aim at as you think about how you can go about doing a good job doing this thing that you've been hired by the constituents to do. Well, the Teddy Roosevelt thing is funny. I, I went on a big Teddy Roosevelt kick several years ago and read uh, a lot of his biographies. And then I started looking at books that he had written. Uh, he, he wrote, he was a prolific writer. He wrote all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and I went through and read some of that. And one of the things that I really appreciated about Teddy Roosevelt is that he ha he had this very strong moral certainty about things. Not, and and I want to be careful how I say that. I mean, he wasn't inflexible. Like he was, he was willing to adapt, and he was willing to change, and he was willing to bring in new things. Actually, that was kind of his thing. There was like an old guard uh, establishment Republican Party, and then Teddy Roosevelt, who said, "We've got to do this differently. We're we're not helping people in what we're doing." And one of the most fascinating things about him is there was a lot of pressure for him to just conform to what the party wanted. They wanted, they were like, you know, you're not going to get the nomination, da, 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 all these different things. They really wanted him to just conform to that. And he was, he dug in and he was like, no, the party's going to move to me. Like I, and th that takes such a, such an incredibly strong personality to do that. But he, he was, he was resolute. I mean, he, uh, he was determined that the party was going to move his way because he felt that if it didn't, it was it was doomed because they were too old. They were not modernizing. They weren't getting in with the times. This is the early 1900s, uh, the, the heyday of the Industrial Revolution, and they were still running these old machine politics. And he was like, it's got to be different. And he kind of forced that issue. And also, he was just a character. I mean, he just... He got shot while giving a speech and said, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I've just been shot. And this is when he was launching a third party, the bull moose party. And he said, but it will take more than that to stop a bull moose. <laughs> uh, well, um, are any others, any other sort of influential historical figures um, or, or, closer to your contemporaries, people who you would look to? I think there, I mean, it's hard to find, like to look specifically, but there, there are, you know, when I was a kid, I loved history and I loved government and I loved these stories. And one of the things that, that both drew me to this and has also been a little disappointing is the idealism I had about this. I mean, I, I viewed government and, and this work as the place where really smart and good and thoughtful people went to try to solve problems in the best way possible. And, and then you get into it and you realize it's, you know, that there's some of that there, but there's also this ugly part over here that's not that. And so it's it's been a little bit of a like kind of wiping the naivety away, sort of, so to speak. But I still believe that at its best, this is a great vehicle to bring if we keep our finger on the on the pulse of a community and all of the communities and and we bring them together 
and we have those discussions in good faith, right? That's the key, right? Are we having discussions in good faith to try to solve problems? We can disagree. We can have completely competing in, in interest, right? Urban areas have completely different concerns than rural areas. But if we have the conversation in good faith about how to manage those, I really think we can find some good solutions. And historically, you look in Kansas, I mean, there have been huge compromises historically with, uh, well, education, what we're going to do about that with, uh, you know, any time that we've had to revamp property taxes and decide that was a big issue in the 80s, um, water policy, all these things. I mean, these are real structural issues that are going to, they're going to require real conversation and to move away from the political side of things if we're actually going to solve them. And I, I still think and hope that there's definitely room for that in this system, that there are well-intentioned people who do this for the right reasons. It, it's a weird, I'll say this and I'll stop. It's a weird thing that I've noticed. The people in this system, almost to a person, are good. They're, 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 they come there with their idea of what's right. They come there with their idea of what needs to happen. It, what happens, as I see it, is there's some dynamic that happens once the system latches hold of the people in it that then changes that dynamic. To me, a lot of that goes back to process, right? So we may have a system where our processes need some level of reform that would encourage the sorts of behaviors that we actually want to see. And there may be some aspects of our process that are encouraging the behaviors that we don't want to see, the sort of the political infighting, the name calling, um, the not arguing in good faith, um, the just not even bringing up a bill for discussion, even though probably a majority of people within the chamber support it. Um, those are uh, those are problems within the process. So if I might challenge you and I might try to get us out of here on this question, and I'll give you a bonus one if you want it. But if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about the legislature and you can't pick the Democrats are in the majority. Um, not to say that you would have picked that anyway, but I'm going to take that one off the table. You can't rewrite who is there. What would you change about the way that the legislature works that you think would improve the process? You're, you're going to get me in trouble. Um, but I will answer this question. Um, if I could do one thing absolutely to, that I think would improve the process, it would be to directly elect committee chairs from the committee. I think that we would, we would have our leadership elections. People would take their positions. We would appoint the committees and then the committee chair would be elected by the people on that committee. And that could be based on a number of factors. It could be based on expertise. It could be based on trust. It could be based on relationships. The process now is that the speaker of the house, probably in consultation with majority leader gets to determine who the chair of each committee is and who the vice chair is. And then if they don't comply with what the leadership wants, they can, can and have lost their chairmanship. And the, the dynamic of power is that once you have some of it, you want to keep it. And so people tend to be compliant. And, I, and, and, and the threat of losing a chairmanship is a it's a big threat and it's a big fear. And so if I change one thing and I think it would structurally just make everything different is that we just took that power away, which I recognize and understand is an absolute fundamental change in the system. But it is the sort of thing where, I mean, I've mentioned Pittman before. There's not a person in that building that doesn't acknowledge that when it comes to computer security and technology, Nobody knows more in that building than Jeff Pittman. It's his work, it's his career, and it's what he's done. He went to MIT. I mean, it, it's like nobody questions that. He will never be the chair of a committee simply because of, of his political party. I would rather have the expert in the building as the chair of that committee. Yeah, that makes sense. That is a, a bit of a wonky in the weeds answer to that question, but I think in that way, a great one. Because I think it, it points to something that I think is deeply true which is that we can often make one or two seemingly subtle changes in the rules or the way that our processes work to have great leverage and great impact. 
And I think that that might be one of them. And if I could propose uh, a, a, a 1B option, it might be related to the bills then that have gotten out of committee actually coming up for a debate on, on in within the chambers. I, I am... I would love to see a world in which everything that came out of the committee had to see a vote on the floor, even if the vote was to send it back to committee, that the, some kind of vote had to be taken on every bill so that you could get rid of this nonsense where things come out of the committee and then just never see a vote on either side of the house, right? Because I, I know that speaks directly to this fentanyl test strip um, issue that you were working on, that the big part of the issue was just couldn't get it out of the committee mm -hmm. on the Senate side. Um, so after it had gotten out of the house. Anyway, um, Jason, thank you so much for spending some time to sit down and talk to me. Thank you for the long digression on the legislature. Um, I That was one of my regrets that we hadn't got to spend more time talking about that. Um, you've already talked about cycling on the podcast. I still don't think you've gotten around to fishing. Um, but as I've told you, I'm pretty sure we have to have Amy Bickle back on the podcast. To, to talk, do that to, one. <laughs> to, do, to do fishing. Um, and, uh, uh, but... This has been a great conversation. I hope that your listeners have enjoyed it. And hopefully folks have learned a little bit more about, about what really goes on up in Topeka. And I hope it serves as a reminder that, you know, in the middle of all of this crazy political season that we're in um, and all of the rhetoric, frankly, truly from both sides, um, at the end of the day, when we vote for people and they go to Topeka, they have to do real serious work. And it's complicated and it's very hard, actually. And if you're doing it well, and I think it's important that people understand just how complicated and weird and, and troublesome in some ways the process is so that they have some sense about what qualities you would want uh, to have in someone who we're sending there. Um, and since this isn't a campaign message, I won't say vote for Probst. Um, but if it were, I might. <laughs> Take care, Jason. Thank you. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Salt City Sound Production.